may be around the world and thank you for your company on truth to you.org that's truth number two letter you.org joining me is the director of education and counseling for jews for judaism in canada the website is jewsforjudaism.ca jewsforjudaism.ca welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Good day, Jono. How you doing? Good day, mate. Oh, see, yeah, just a little <laughs> bit of practice does wonders. That's pretty good. I'm going to and school, it's great by the way. Hey, what's that? I'm going to school to learn how to speak Australian. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, now, listen, we, of course, we are continuing to investigate the alleged 365 Messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. Uh, there were some developments. People will remember last week we did the Christmas special, which was, uh, what was that? That was Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the alleged virgin birth story. Uh, we did a whole program on that, boys and girls. If you missed that, then you need to go back one and, and tune into that. But I'd like to thank everybody who left comments, very detailed comments on that particular post, Aaron and Carmen. Carmen left a, a very interesting comment. We'll get back to that. We'll get back to that in just a moment. CBB, uh, Yeshiahu left comments. Uh, Sophie, oh my goodness, Sophie leaves just incredible comments. Thank you, Sophie, for taking the time. And my friend Mary, g'day, Mary. And Joel, g'day, Joel. It's just a, a whole lot of, and, and the reason why there were so many comments, uh, Michael, is because Carmen uh, left a comment that it, it began like this. She said, Shalom, Jono and, and Rabbi Skoback. You espoused some interesting comments concerning the virgin birth, but we are still convinced that Isaiah 7 was speaking of Yeshua. Now, that's the first sentence she begins her comment with. The last sentence that she ends her comment with, it says, that being the case, by this reasoning, Matthew's direct quoting of this passage in support of a virgin birth seems at best misguided and at worst irresponsibly deceptive. Now, that confused everybody. <laughs> that really confused everyone. We weren't too sure which side I of the think, fence. I think that her, that her email must have been hacked by uh, someone. Maybe. Maybe it was hacked. Maybe it was. Well, no, no. In, in the following uh, comments, she tries to explain what it was she was uh, intending there uh, because quite a few people were confused and wrote in the comments trying to nut out where exactly she was coming from. In any case, people can read that uh, on the Christmas special, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, regarding the so-called virgin birth. Now, that wasn't the only thing that we got from the refiner's fire. We had an interesting article. It wasn't written by Carmen. It was written by, I believe, her husband, Liam. G'day, Liam! Uh, who perhaps, now that Carmen is no longer the official Truth To You critic, maybe Liam is wanting that T-shirt. And he wrote uh, a rather long uh, article uh, insinuating that we uh, called them all sorts of things. Uh, I'm just going to read one particular paragraph, if I may. He says, uh, some of the things they said, you and I, some of the things they said were downright pernicious, as it was clear in their dialogue, dripping with sarcasm, that they view us as illiterate or mindless bozos because we, quote, believe in Yeshua. I mean, we are talking about people who accept completely, quote, by faith alone that God created the world in seven days and that people in the biblical times lived to be nearly a thousand years old and that God flooded the entire uh, world except for Noah and, and his family. No proof, but hey, they believe it. And they believe that God supernaturally, supernaturally kept Israel alive for 40 years by providing manna. And, God, and, and Moshe wrote the Torah. Never mind that Moshe died before the end of Deuteronomy, and yet somehow the Torah was magically finished. And they simply accept that the Hebrews in the wilderness are a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and that Moshe's face was so bright when he descended 
the mountain where he somehow received two tablets of stone with Ten Commandments written by the, quote, finger of God. But for us, for us, he says, to believe the promised Messiah is found in Yeshua without, quote, evidence. Well, that's just blasphemy and stupid, isn't it? Now, (laughs) the whole article is uh, has that kind of vibe about it. And it's funny that he says we're dripping with sarcasm. This particular article is incredibly sarcastic and puts words into our mouth as if we insulted them like this. I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of uh, insinuations uh, that we apparently made, uh, insulting insinuations towards them. But I think we've been fairly respectful thus far, don't you think? I think we have been. And I think that, that to me, this, I didn't read the whole letter, but what you've read sounds like uh, what Shakespeare would say, me thinks he does protest too much. Right, yes. Um, I think that really sort of, I think he's missing the point of these shows. Um, you know, obviously, someone that was secular, a person that was a secular person, you know, might uh, feel that our belief in the biblical stories is unwarranted because they would say, you know, you mean you believe that, uh, you know, the Jews came out of Egypt after these ten plagues and they crossed the Red Sea simply because the Bible says so, you know, and they might find the biblical biblical accounts to be, you know, incredibly difficult to believe and miraculous and so i can see a secular person um who doesn't believe in the uh authority or the revelation of the bible you know questioning why someone would accept these stories as factual just because they're written in the bible and it, it's so surprising me that he would raise uh this as our objection to what he believes because if what he believes was clearly expressed in the bible like all the stories he just pointed out I mean, the Bible does speak about a flood in the times of Noah. The Bible does speak about the Jews crossing the Red Sea. The Bible does speak about the Jews going through the desert with the clouds of glory. I mean, everything that he is pointing out is very clearly taught in the Bible. Anyone that reads the Bible would see that's what it teaches. And I think that the point of our uh, expositions here is simply to examine their belief that they claim is backed up by what the Bible says. And Hmm. I would say the difference is that um, all of those things that he's sort of uh, questioning why we believe it, it's because the Bible says so. And, you know, we we accept the Bible at its word. And I think that we're just simply wondering, does the Bible really teach uh, the beliefs that he uh, espouses? Does the Bible really teach that the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin? I think that the, the entire point of, let's say, last week's show was to question, A, the, the translation that, that he's basing himself upon, or at least Matthew, uh, and B, whether or not you know, the, the people who understand Isaiah to be saying this are simply misreading the whole context of the passage. Meaning that when you hmm. read any uh, text, not just the Bible, any text, to understand it properly, you have to understand it in its context. You've got to translate the words properly. And if you don't do those things, you're just simply not understanding what the text says and what the text means. And so we're not really having a dispute with 
his believing things that are based upon what the Bible says, we're really questioning whether the Bible says what he's claiming it says. That's There it is. That's beautiful in a nutshell, and that is what we are continuing to do. Now, as we mentioned last week, uh, Carmen and Liam uh, of refinersfire.org have done us a favor and trimmed out the list of 365, and we don't see a reason, I think, to... Uh, focus on the ones that they think are no longer legitimate prophecies, uh, ones that they have crossed off the list. So uh, that brings us to, let's see, where are we up to? I think we are up to... 115. uh, 1.15 on the the new list. On the list of 365, it brings us to 167. What we have omitted, and uh, if people are really following closely... On the list of 365, number 166, well, we won't go into it. We're going to skip over that because it's going to save us some time. We're going to go straight to 167 because Carmen doesn't believe that 166 is a prophecy. And if she doesn't believe it, she's crossed it off her list. That's good enough for us, right? It's good enough for me. <laughs> it's, give me that. Give me do that. you see, Carmen, all the, all the time that you've saved us, we, re- we really do appreciate it. All right. Uh, 167 on the list of 365. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both, the hou- to both houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, the corresponding verse in the New Testament, according to the list, is Matthew chapter 21, verses 43 and 44. And that says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But whoever on whomever it falls, uh, it will grind him to powder. Oh, wow. How about that? Also, uh, we have first Peter chapter two, verse eight, which says, and and it quotes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. The messianic prophecy that was fulfilled in this case, uh, according to the list, is, I don't know, it says a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Somehow that's a messianic prophecy fulfilled. Michael? Well, here's one way I would approach this, and actually even many of the coming passages we'll be looking at. um, I, I sort of remember back to when I was in fourth grade, And one of the things that we would be given as an assignment in school would be to read material, read a passage or some paragraphs and give it a title. And sometimes when you're doing that exercise, it really helps you really get a handle on what are you really dealing with. If you could take a body of material, a body of literature, and try to just express in your own words what is really going on here. And I think that if a person was to read... Uh, let's say Isaiah chapters 7 through 10, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we could say, well, what's going on here is that this is uh, really a number of chapters that are providing uh, hints and symbols and associations and uh, obscure references that might have something to do with the Messiah. That might be one way of just looking at these chapters, that when you get into mm-hmm. the meat of these chapters, you're picking up little clues about uh, who the Messiah is and what his nature is going to be. On the other hand, someone that reads these chapters of Isaiah, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, might notice that it's actually dealing with something very much on the ground. I think that uh, when you read the book of Isaiah, one of the things you come to realize is that Isaiah is not you know, some ethereal prophet floating out in the outer space. 
he lived at a certain time in Jewish history. There were really things going on in, in his time, and he was often speaking to the realities of the time in which he lived. And uh, what is very, 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 I mean, to anyone that just takes the time to simply read what is going on in these chapters of Isaiah is that there was an existential threat at that time to the kingdom of Judah. Um, there was actually, we're going to see this, there were threats to, to both kingdoms, both the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and the focus for Isaiah was really more the southern kingdom of Judah. But really what's going on in these chapters is there's a lot of uh, danger, there are a lot of plots, there's a lot of intrigue, there are political alliances. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, what sometimes is called court intrigue. Um, but these are, these are things that were really pressing for the people of Israel and the kingdom of Judah about 700 BCE. And if you ignore that reality, uh, I assure you, you will not even come close to being able to read these chapters with any kind of mm. uh, cogency or accuracy. You're literally going to uh, miss what's going on, and you could very easily um, do what you know these list makers seem to be doing, which is to basically ignore totally the real context and to simply, again, cherry pick and look back uh, ex post facto with their belief in hand that Jesus was the Messiah born to a virgin, etc., and find what they see as these uh, references, associations, clouds, types, uh, hints, uh, associations, shadows. shadows. Yeah, I mean, it, it's again, it's, it's to me, it's a, an exercise in such futility because it, it really is not productive because literally you're not really reading what Isaiah meant or Isaiah said, you're simply trying to shoehorn back into Isaiah what you already believe. Mm. And uh, I mean, I don't see why that's a profitable kind of exercise. We could do it probably with any book on the planet. You could probably do it with the New York City phone book is to take, you take your beliefs and stick it back in there. You're going to find probably in the Brooklyn Yellow Pages 40,000 people named Emmanuel. So there you find... Uh, mm. so. I, again, I think that the problem that we see with this stumbling block, the rock of offense, you know, it's even hard to understand what their point is. But clearly, they, they do view Jesus as a rock of offense in some way, as a stumbling block. Um, you know, the real question is what's really happening here in this chapter of Isaiah. Mm. And uh, verse 13, the very just the very previous verse, yes. just makes it abundantly clear that who it's talking about in terms of this, who will be a rock of offense? Who will be this stumbling block? It says yeah, Hashem. It's, can, I, can I read it? It yes. says Hashem. It says, well, it says the Lord, the Tetragrammaton is there, the Lord of hosts. Him you shall follow. Him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel. So what does that mean if it's talking about God? Yeah, so it is obviously speaking about God. And, and you have such a, uh, an important Christian commentary like the New King James Version Study Bible does not see this passage as a messianic prophecy. So again, it's not just uh, we, you know, people who are blinded to the truth, but even Christians who are willing to be honest with the text agree that this is not a messianic prophecy. And there, there are basically, among people who study the Bible, two possible ways of uh, interpreting this passage, because there are possibly two 
intrigues, two tensions that uh, the prophet may have been referring to. One is that chapter 7 of Isaiah speaks about this great attack by, by uh, the northern kingdom and Assyria against mm-hmm. uh, Ahaz, the king. And, mm. uh, the, and uh, his, his great rival is Pekah. Uh, and so there were people in the southern kingdom who sided with Pekah against Ahaz, meaning that you had not everybody in the southern kingdom was loyal. And, you know, there were people who probably felt, you know, we're about to be overrun and maybe we should, uh, you know, side with the other guys against the king of Judah. Mm-hmm. So there, there were people who conspired against Ahaz. And that's one possibility, that God is going to be a stumbling block, a, uh, a trap, a snare against these conspirators, or probably more likely, because we're now into chapter 8, is that it's really referring to the intrigue and the, uh, and the, the tensions of the coming chapters, which deal not with the attack against the southern kingdom of Judah by uh, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria, but re- rather it's referring to the Assyrian invasion of Israel by Sancherev. And at that time, there was, again, within Judah, there was a conspiracy by Shevna, who really was almost siding with Sancherev against uh, the king, which, who was Hezekiah at the time. Mm-hmm. So one of these two uh, political intrigues uh, what we're being told here is that those people who are not loyal to the kingdom and not loyal to the, the, the Davidic kingdom, uh, God is going to basically get them. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's essentially what we're being told here. And that would be the most important thing to recognize. The second thing is, if for some reason someone had their heart on seeing this chapter in Isaiah as a messianic prophecy, again, there's no reason in the world to, to do that. Um, you know, all it would be saying is that this Messiah, supposedly, would be a stumbling block, whatever that means, a rock of offense, what does that mean? And again, there'd be no proof that it was fulfilled by Jesus or has anything to do with Jesus, meaning that, again, it would be simply another example of the Christian asserting that Jesus did this, Jesus fulfilled this. Uh, but they, they are compelled to, aren't they, Michael? Because the, the New Testament writer, uh, particularly in, in Peter quoting, First Peter quoting this passage, they are compelled then to say, oh, this is somehow a prophecy fulfilled, uh, just, just included in the list. I suppose the question comes down to why did Peter uh, or, or the writer of First Peter include it? It's, it's, uh, well, but it does paint them into a corner by which they have to nod their head. Well, again, I, I think we discussed this last time that, you know, if I wanted to be less generous, I would say that, you know, these New Testament writers are engaging in uh, purposeful uh, deception, a purposeful misreading of the text in order to bolster their, uh, you know, case for Jesus. They're mm-hmm. finding all these proofs. I don't really think that that's what the writers were doing. I think that um, you know, the writers may very well agree with us that, you know, Isaiah really didn't mean and didn't intend uh, the interpretation that we're giving it. Um, but as believers in Yeshua, we find interesting connections. We find a literary illusion. We find some association. It perks our uh, associative faculties, meaning we as believers, looking back to the Hebrew Scriptures, these scriptures sort of come alive for us because of what we believe, which, again, they're perfectly 
they have their right to do that. But mm. what they don't have a right to do is to say, you know, for other people who don't begin their study of the Tanakh with a belief in Jesus, to say, if you will only read the scriptures fairly and honestly with an open heart and an open mind, you will see that it clearly and plainly teaches that Jesus is the Messiah because he fulfilled these prophecies, which again are, are, are allegedly clear prophecies about who the Messiah is and how to identify him. See, that they can't do, and that would collapse very quickly. And, mm. and that, I think, uh, is all we're trying to do. I don't think that I would deny someone the right to begin with their belief in Yeshua and then say that their creative, interpretive, poetic associative way of looking back at the Old Testament as they see some connection. That's fine. Mazel tov. But right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a million miles away from asserting that Isaiah is proving what they believe. Right. And that's yeah, very good. The next one on the list, number, 100, number 168 on the list of 365 is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It does say, nevertheless... The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now, the uh, corresponding New Testament uh, verse is found, according to the list, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, Michael, it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sit in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's another situation, Michael, where... Uh, Isaiah has been quoted, therefore it must be a prophecy. The, the Christian must say here is a prophecy because it was fulfilled. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess that settles it. <laughs> settles it. There you go. So this is actually number 116 in the New Revised Standard list. The New Revised Standard list, let me just remind the listeners, the, the, the New Revised Standard list is, uh, appears on the refinersfire.org. It is the, uh, the list that they went through. They took out 63 that they thought were not legitimate prophecies or they thought were double-ups or whatever it might be. They removed those and they refined their list to 302. We're referring to that as the, the, new, the new, what is it? New Revised Standard Version. New Revised Standard Version, Michael. And this is 116. And also we should point out, by the way, that they're using here a Christian pageantation to Isaiah because the first verse that they're quoting here is not actually Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 in a Jewish uh, version. That would be the last verse in chapter 8. Uh, uh -huh. So we have, we're actually we're going to be off one verse in, these chap in this chapter at least. And uh, again, what I said in the previous um, entry was that there's sort of a, just uh, an ignoring of the context here. Um, when they think about what's really uh, taking place. 
Well, this is yeah. This is what we want to know. What is really taking place? Because apparently, the uh, the messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is his his ministry, meaning Jesus's ministry, to begin in Galilee. So both of these uh, mention Galilee. What what is actually happening in Isaiah chapter nine? Well, it actually begins with the very end here of chapter eight, mm-hmm. and uh, the the ending of chapter eight of Isaiah speaks about the Assyrian invasion of the land of Israel. And actually, there was an invasion that took place in three different stages. And the first tribes to be exiled, um, when the Assyrians really essentially took over the the kingdom of Israel, were the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're being mentioned here. And uh, so really, again, the important thing to observe is that these chapters are not saying anything about where the Messiah's ministry is going to begin. I mean, forget about Jesus. It's not really talking about even the Messiah in terms of where his ministry is going to begin. It's speaking here about uh, which of the first tribes that are going to be really exiled from the land after they're being conquered by the Assyrians. And chapter 9, verse 1, which they probably has as, uh, I think, 9, verse 2, speaks about the land being in great darkness, so that's now focusing on the southern kingdom. Uh, that's what the focus of this chapter is. And it's really speaking uh, ultimately about the invasion of Jerusalem and the siege of Jerusalem by Sancherov and his armies. And that, that's the actual context of this chapter of Isaiah. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's why it describes the people is living in great darkness. Um, the the continuing verses. I mean, all you need to do to demonstrate this is to see that the the following verses uh, in a Jewish version it would be verses three and four um, speak about this terrible burden. Uh, I'll just read in my version here: for the yoke Please. of its burden and the staff on its shoulder, the rod that oppressed them, you smashed like the day of Midian. For all tumultuous battles are fought with an uproar. And the garments swallow in blood, but in parentheses, Sancherib became ablaze and was consumed by fire. I mean that it's speaking here about the siege of Jerusalem by Sancherib and how ultimately there's going to be a great salvation um, that will take place. And it's mm-hmm. not, it's not dealing here with uh, you know the geographical location in the land of Israel where the ministry of the Messiah is going to begin. Um, you know, it's very, again, it's very clear just by reading these chapters uh, simply and, and plainly as they're dealing with a military invasion, a military siege, mm. terrible uh, situation for the Jewish people because, again, they were on the brink of extinction. It wasn't as if, you know, these were conquering nations that were coming in just to tickle them. I mean, th- right. these were wars back then of uh, total stuff. conquest and... Uh, we know what happened to the ten northern tribes. They were exiled and they were never heard mm. from again. And so mm. Jerusalem was facing the same fate. Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah were facing this world superpower, the Assyrians. And it was almost lights out, as you would say. Almost lights out. And that's why mm. it says they were facing this great darkness. But we know what happened. There was a great salvation, as we're going to see in the coming uh, prophecy, so to speak. And, right. uh, and Isaiah now is going to describe the, the way in which this salvation came about. Now, on the, on the, uh, the list of 365, the next one is 169. Fortunately for us, 
uh, we don't have to deal with that because uh, Carmen crossed it off her list. It's just as well because the prophecy was that a child would be born. Moving along. Now, 117 in uh, Carmen's new Revised Standard Version is uh, the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles. This is the, uh, the supposed prophecy fulfilled. That, is, uh, that comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Now, we've already read 1 to 2. Verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 9 says, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, the corresponding verse, apparently, according to this list, is Luke chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, which says, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and your glory and the glory of your people, Israel. Michael. So, you know, this is interesting that, that uh, on some level, what is being claimed here, there's some truth to it, but it's not uh, based upon this passage in Isaiah, meaning that um, we could certainly say that the Messiah would ultimately, will ultimately be a light to the Gentiles, mm-hmm. but that's not what this passage is, is referring to. It's interesting that when we're studying the Bible and the concept of Messiah, in some ways, we cannot um, certainly remove the Messiah from uh, his context as being the king of the Jewish nation, meaning that the Messiah, in many ways, is the representative of the nation. And the two are very, very closely related. So we know, for example, that the Bible speaks about the Jewish nation as being a light to the peoples, a light to the nations, an or lagoyim. And we know that one of the themes of Scripture is that one day, uh, Isaiah chapter 60 says this, for example, you know, that, that throughout the Bible we're called a light to the nations. And Isaiah 60 says that one day the nations will come to our light. Um, we know that in Zechariah chapter 8, it speaks about, you know, the nations grabbing hold of the garment of a Jew and saying, we want to come with you, we've heard God is with you. Um, so you have this theme in Scripture that the Jewish nation, the people of Israel, will be a light to the nations. The nations will come to our light. And so the Messiah, as the leader of the Jewish people, the king of the Jewish people, obviously, if the nation is going to be a light to the, to the Gentiles, certainly the Messiah will be part of that and a, and a leader of that enterprise. But this chapter in Isaiah is not speaking about the Messiah, and it's certainly not speaking about a light to the Gentiles, meaning that the context here is that the, the, it is speaking about a Messiah, actually, because every Jewish king was a Messiah. This particular king we're going to see is Hezekiah, is Hezekiahu, um, but it's not referring to the ultimate, uh, let's say, eschatological Messiah, the person that we refer to as the Messiah. It's speaking again about something that took place about 700 BCE, the Jewish people are in this incredible bind because they're about to be wiped out by the Assyrians. And there is the birth of this king, Chizkiah, who is going to be the agent of their salvation. So he is going to be, this, this uh, king will be a light, not to the Gentiles, it's going to be a light to the Jewish people who are about to, to have their light ext- extinguished. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if, again, I would say this would be a misinterpretation. If a person was hell-bent on misinterpreting this passage, that it is speaking about the Messiah, 
and it is saying that the Messiah will be a light to the nations. Again, I think that's a misreading, um, although I think it's ultimately true. Mm-hmm. But again, there's no proof that Jesus did this, meaning that it's simply a Christian belief that Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. Um, but there's nothing you know, that uh, really vindicates that belief. It's certainly only an assertion. It's a belief they have. And it would be, again, one of the f- things that fit into the formula that I gave previously of, well, the New Testament says so. Um, that's all we have, really. We have the testament of the, of the New Testament, that uh, Jesus you know, is this light to the Gentiles. But uh, again, nothing in Isaiah would point us in that direction. Fair enough. And yeah. now, just, just in case people are confused, uh, this is 117 on the New Revised Standard uh, list that uh, uh, Carmen has produced for us. It doesn't appear on the list of 165, 365, but that's where that one came from. But the next, uh, good heavens, how many? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, a whole lot of them <laughs> <laughs> on the list of 365 from uh, 169 all the way to 179, deal with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And, Michael, what I thought we would do, if it's okay with you, I might just read those two verses and let you explain to us, uh, because these are verses that, that Christians are very familiar with, and uh, maybe you could put it into context for us and tell us what it is, in fact, talking about. Okay. It's, it says, here it is, For unto us... A child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Again, this is, uh, this is one that we characteristically hear uh, around the 25th of December, isn't it? Yes, this could um, be the continuation of our Christmas show. This is the continuation. This is the <laughs> part two of the Christmas special, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. What is the context of this verse and what does it really mean? Okay, so first of all, the important background information we've already established that this is a chapter that's speaking about, just as we saw in chapter 7, uh, that the context to this child being born in chapter 7 was the great political crisis that King Ahaz was facing, this impending invasion by the northern tribes and by Syria. So that's the only way to understand what happens in chapter 7, verse 14. So again, to understand these verses of chapter 9, we have to understand the, the context politically is mm-hmm. that there is this very, very serious, uh, you know, existential threat to the people living in the kingdom of Judah by the invading Assyrian armies led by Sancherev. And it describes the great darkness that the people were feeling because that was, uh, you know, it was basically, it would be very easy for them to feel that this is the end. It, it, we're being surrounded. It's this huge army. We're finished. And what is taking place in this chapter is, again, it's not speaking about a Messiah who's going to be coming in 700 years from then. It's just that that doesn't really fit into this chapter. It's talking about a child who was born at that time already, someone who already had been born, who was going to be uh, the the tool, the, the agent through which God would basically rescue them. And mm-hmm. what you see is 
that the um, Hebrew here really speaks very clearly about a child that has already been born in the past. The Hebrew word yulad, uh, wherever you look it up in the Hebrew scriptures, refers to someone who has already been born. It's in the past tense. And the, the other word nitan has been given to us, again, is in the past tense. And when it says that vayikra shmo, his name has already been called. So the Hebrew makes it fairly clear that this child that's being spoken of has already been born, and we're going to be finding out about this child, who he is and what he's going to do. Now, that may not satisfy all Christian readers, because they may say, and I can hear them saying this, that we have something in the Bible called the prophetic past, being that they would argue probably that not every time in the Bible where it speaks about something in the past tense is it referring to something that took place already in the past, that they say that sometimes a prophecy is so clear that Scripture refers to a future event as if it had already taken place. So Mm -hmm. that is, again, it's not an illegitimate way of reading the Bible. I would say that uh, it's legitimate, but you need a reason to give that kind of a novel twist. It's not the normal way of reading it, meaning that the past tense usually means past tense, unless you have a very, very good reason for reading it as not the past tense. But what I would say is that even if one was to insist that this is the prophetic past, that it's still not speaking about something that's going to take place in 700 years. That's the clear thing. That if it's referring to someone who's going to be born, it's referring to someone who's literally about to be born any moment. Because these people don't have a lot of time until they're going Mm. to have to be rescued. So we, we know that to be able to read this in context... It's speaking about someone named Hiskiyahu, Hezekiah, and he had already been born. He was young, and he was actually a young king. And we're being told here that he would be the agent through which the Jewish people would be rescued in this dire uh, crisis. Now, one of the ways, and I think this, uh, I think this is usually missed by Christian readers, is that the text here gives us um, two very, very important clues uh, that really sort of nail it down and clarify that what we're reading in this chapter is uh, about a miraculous, incredibly miraculous rescue and salvation from a very, very uh, dire, threatening, impending military doom situation. And one of those textual clues is... Um, I guess in a Christian version, it would be in verse, um, I guess it's verse 4, where it speaks about um, that you've broken the yoke as in the days of Midian. Now, what is that referring to, that God has broken the yoke as in the days of Midian? Hmm. And uh, all you need to do, really, is to go back to the story of Midian uh, in the book of Judges, chapters 6 through 8, where the Jewish people are very, very similar situation. They are being oppressed by the Midianites to the point of, you know, where it's almost the end of the story for them. I mean, it's, it's very bleak. And so you have a very similar kind of uh, situation of an impending, uh, basically, uh, catastrophic invasion. And in that story, in the book of Judges, uh, God raises up uh, Gideon. Gideon, exactly. Gideon mm. uh, leads 
his people. And when we read the story, we see that it wasn't uh, a normal kind of uh, victory that he was able to fight, meaning that he didn't have uh, a fair fight on his hands. He, he, he whittled down his army to about 300 men. Uh, he wanted to make it clear, it seems, that he wasn't going to win this battle because he w- was uh, a, a superpower just like the uh, Midianites. Mm. So he whittles down his fighting force. He wanted only people that were righteous and only people that were worthy to be fighting. But it doesn't really look like he has much of a chance because he's up against a huge, huge army. And so when we read chapters 6 through 8 in the book of Judges, we see A, the Jewish people are faced with a very bleak outlook. They're about to be wiped off the face of the earth. You have this person who is the agent of God. In the book of Judges, it's Gideon the enemy of the Midianites, as Isaiah says, as in the days of Midian. And what happens sort of out of the blue is this incredible victory where a huge number of the enemy, 120,000, we're told, are just vanquished overnight. Mm. So that's the, let's say, the model that Isaiah is giving us here. Isaiah is saying that whatever is taking place in chapter 9 here is just like in the days of Midian. And we know what happens in Midian is that there is this great hero that God raises up, and he leads the Jews in an incredible supernatural victory over their enemies. Now, the second textual clue would be in verse 7 in a Christian Bible, and in verse 6 in a Jewish version here, where the verse says that uh, this, this child who will be born will have uh, government and peace upon him and upon the throne of David, meaning this is going to be a king of the Jewish people, has to be from the line of David. And we're told that his throne and his time of peace will be established by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a very unusual phrase in the Bible. It only appears, actually, in this story of Isaiah chapter 9. You only find it actually comes up three times in the entire Bible, as far as I know. Now, one time you see it is when later on in the book of Isaiah, he actually gives you the details of this invasion by Sancherev, the Assyrians. It's Mm -hmm. basically in chapters 36 and 37 in the book of Isaiah. And again, you see that Jerusalem is totally surrounded. Uh, Sancherev is about to just wipe them off the face of the earth. And Hezekiah, who was the leader of the Jewish people, he's the king of the Jewish people at that time, he leads, the, he leads them in this incredible victory where actually the angel of God comes and miraculously vanquishes the entire Assyrian army. Here, 180,000 of them are mm. killed just overnight. It's in chapter 37, verse 36. So again, you have the same model where you have this huge army about to wipe us out. There's this great leader, and just miraculously, there's an instantaneous destruction of just the entire enemy army. Mm. And verse 32 in that chapter of Isaiah, chapter 37, verse 32 says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Uh, Now, you see again, the whole story is recapitulated because often... The stories that take place in Isaiah, you'll find in the book of Kings. So if you go to 2 Kings, chapter 19, you'll see again this whole story is retold of the Assyrian invasion of, of, of Judah, Judea, 
and uh, again, the impending doom of Jerusalem, they're surrounded, they're in darkness, and again, an angel of the Lord comes, miraculously wipes out 185,000 of the enemy army, that's in chapter 19, verse 35. But if you go back to 19, verse 31, again, it uses this expression, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. How about that? So, what, what Isaiah is doing here, I mean, you have so many textual clues. You have the context you get from the previous chapters in the Bible, uh, all these textual clues. It's telling you, just it's hitting you over the head, and it's telling us that this is a story not of the birth of some Messiah in 700 years. This is telling you that, that we were in dire straits, and there was someone that was the agent of, of our redemption here, just like Gideon was the agent of the redemption in the time of the Midianites. This particular child who has been born already and who will be the agent of our salvation in this story, we're told, is going to have this uh, naming. <laughs> mm-hmm. And here we... Uh, we're it's, not, it's the naming. It's the naming that people find problematic. This is this yeah. is where uh, the, the the Christians bolster their their claim that this is talking about Jesus because the name once again for the people we have uh, he will be called at least in, is what it says in the New King James wonderful Counselor mighty God uh, someone called mighty God an everlasting Father Prince of Peace and uh, and and so on and so forth what what does Hezekiah mean and how can this possibly uh, well, be connected see I think that you know. Certainly, any reader of the Bible here, you know, this would perk their ears. Hmm. Um, but you know, I think I once, I think when we had our first session about um, the the rules of the game and the rules of, of exegesis, mm-hmm. I think what often happens is that the Christian reader um, really begins with a with an anomaly in the text, meaning that you know they'll often find something in the text that is strange, unusual, weird, hard to understand. And they simply drop Jesus into it. Now, here it's very important to point out that uh, when you're working with a Christian translation, the textual problems become a little bit more pronounced. But you'll often find that a Hebrew translation of this passage will read very differently. Uh, I'll give you an example from the translation I'm reading here, which is the Art Scroll English Tanakh. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very, very sort of a similar approach to taken by most Jewish translations. It says the following. The wondrous advisor, mighty God, eternal father, called his name the Prince of Peace. Meaning that ah. it's not saying the child's name is this, you know, 14-word name, which is sort of strange. That Although we saw previously in Isaiah that, you know, kids sometimes have these long names. Mm-hmm. Um, but here what it's saying is that um, God, who is referred to as the wondrous advisor, the mighty God, the eternal father, that God will call the name of this child the Prince of Peace. And the reason, I mean, it's pretty clear, is that we see um, that uh, Hezekiah is going to be the agent to bring peace to the Jewish people. Um, and this is actually spelled out in Isaiah chapter 39, verse 8. Um, It says, for example, Hezekiah says to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord, which you have spoken. He said, moreover, for there will be peace and truth in my days. So Hezekiah was someone who, thank God, was able to preside over a kingdom of peace. And so what Isaiah chapter 9 here is saying 
is that this child who will be the agent for the salvation and the redemption of the Jewish people at this time of crisis, God is going to name this child the Prince of Peace because he's going to bring peace to the, to the people at that time. So when you, when you read the verse like that, all of the Christian fantasies just go out the window um, because what they get all excited about is that somehow there's a kid and one of the names of this kid is Mighty God. And that is what excites the imagination of the Christian mm. because they see mm. this as a justification for their belief that there's going to be this human being who's going to ultimately be God. Um, it, it bolsters their belief in the divinity of Jesus. It helps them with their idea that a human being can be ultimately a god. Um, that this kid who's born will not just be a kid. He won't just be, you know, a typical kid from the, uh, you know, from the playground. His kid's going to mm. be God in the flesh. Yeah, um, the everlasting Father, no doubt. Yes. Um, so that's one problem. Meaning that 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 if you totally ignore the context here, which I think is you can only do at your own peril. But if you totally ignore the context, then you're stuck with this name, which, again, you have to figure out how to decipher the name. And the, probably the, the most simple way of reading the name, the most normal way of reading it, is that God, who is the eternal father and the wondrous advisor, God will name this kid the Prince of Peace, finished, end of the story. There's not much of a problem. Mm. However, you could, if you wanted to, and I think that it's certainly not impossible to read that the name of this child is going to be the wondrous advisor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, fine. And now the question is, okay, so is the Bible here then saying that there's going to be this child who will be actually God himself? So we already touched on this topic uh, when we discussed Isaiah chapter 7, because there mm -hmm. Christians read the name Emmanuel they mistranslate it to, to mean God with us. So it's sort of asserting that if someone has a name like that, that person must be God who is with us. Um, sort of ignoring the fact that you have millions of Jews with the name Emmanuel. But the, the reality is that in the Bible, um, having a divine name does not mean that the person or the object is God. Um, mm. We know, for example, that in Genesis 33, verse 20, Jacob uh, erects an altar, and he calls it El Elohe Yisrael, God, the God of Israel. Eh, you know, I, I don't think anyone is going to even entertain the possibility that this uh, piece of stone is the Almighty God. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Moses built an altar in Exodus chapter 17, verse 15. He calls it uh, by the four-letter name of God, the Tetragrammaton. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Hashem DC, the Lord is my banner. So again, no, no one would think that this rock is uh, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. The mm. point of a Hebrew name is it tells you something about God. So when, when Moses names this altar, God is my banner, that's all we're being told is that God is the banner of Moses, not right. that this rock is uh, God. Um, Gideon, by the way, in chapter 6 builds an altar and names it uh, the four-letter name of God, the Tetragrammaton Shalom. Mm -hmm. The Lord is peace. The Lord is my peace. Mm -hmm. So again, obviously God is uh, ultimately the cause of all peace in the world. It's interesting, Jeremiah chapter 23 says that the Messiah himself, that's actually going to be a messianic prophecy. We're going to get to that. 
it speaks about the Messiah having the name, the Lord is our righteousness. Um, but in Jeremiah 33, it says that Jerusalem will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Mm, that's uh, true. Yeah, so, I mean, I can go through, a, I mean, a list of hundreds of names. And, of examples. Yeah. So, so let, me just, let me just ask you, once again, uh, Hezekiah, what is the meaning of his name? So, <laughs> so it's interesting. Chizkiyahu, uh, uh, you could theoretically translate as uh, the might of God or mighty God. Um, so the name itself, Chizkiyahu, the name of this king, uh, actually in Hebrew means mighty God or the might of mm. God. Uh, it doesn't have to be translated that way. You know, um, for example, uh, the Hebrew here is El Gibor. So El, you know, is often a short form of Elohim. Elohim is mm-hmm. one of God's titles or names. Yes. But, uh, for example, El simply means power. For example, in Genesis thirty-one twenty-nine, uh, Lavan says to Jacob, there is El Yadi, there is power in my hand to do you evil. Mm. So no translation reads that as the little God in my hand. The word El simply means power. Um, in the Bible, Elohim sometimes are judges, where God says to Moses, I'm going to make you an Elohim over Pharaoh. simply mm-hmm. means you're going to be a powerful over Pharaoh. You'll be an authority over mm-hmm. Pharaoh. Um, there is a verse, interesting, by the way, in Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 21. It speaks about the Ele Giburim, the strong among the mighty. Uh, they don't translate it there as, you know, the mighty gods, plural. So... Mm-hmm. Here, uh, you know, you could translate El Gibor, um, again, if this is the name of, of Hezekiah, that is his name. Hezekiah, Hezekiah, is uh, Hebrew for either the mighty God or God is mighty. Uh, or you could translate it just as simply or equally well as El Gibor could be a powerful ruler. Um, so it doesn't necessarily imply any divinity. Um, again, even if someone's name is translated as mighty God, that does not mean that that person is God. It's just a simple... Hezekiah is, is deity. I mean, clearly that is not the case. And, uh, but that is the definition of his name. Okay, so it, it's fair to conclude uh, from the evidence at hand in the context that this is speaking about Hezekiah. It's very, very, very clear it's talking about Hezekiah. It's, it's entirely clear. And the only, you know, the only part of the passage that's not clear is... Um, what is what the name of the child is going to be? Meaning that it seems that the most elegant way of translating this is that this person, the agent of God, who's going to be the salvation of the Jewish people in this story. So the mighty uh, God, the wonderful advisor, the eternal Father, will name this kid the Prince of Peace because that's what Hezekiah is going to ultimately be. He's going to be the agent that brings peace to the Jewish people. Right. Um, again, if someone were to insist, no, that's not the way it's translated. What it really means is that they're going to name this kid, um, you know, the wonderful advisor, the mighty God, the, one, the eternal father, the prince of peace. So, again, it's quite possible that all these attributes, all these uh, titles are somehow attached to Hezekiah Hezekiah. And, again, they wouldn't mean that he is uh, God in the flesh. I think it's interesting, by the way, that they that one of these names is the Eternal Father. Now, uh, Christians who are are attached to the idea of a Trinity, I, I wonder how they are able to square this because, you know, Jesus is usually considered the Son and not the Father. 
So mm. why would they be naming him in this passage the father if he's not the father but the son? Again, that's not our problem. Or that's a Christian problem to deal with. Um, but again, I think that I think the Christian reader has to get over their misconception that a divine name implies divinity when it's applied mm. to a person or when it's applied to a thing or a city. Right. Um, it's just uh, the Bible is just full. Matter of fact, most of the names in the Hebrew Bible contain God's name in it, mm. including mine and including yours. Well, my my, my real name is not Michael, um, but my my English name Michael does yes. It means one who is like God, um, and Yehonatan uh, is I guess your Hebrew name. That's right. Yohanan yeah. is my Hebrew name and that God has given. So there it is. And so I'm glad that you've cleared that up. And we just did uh, 10 all in one fell swoop. And that was pretty good. How do you like that? I like it. I like it a lot. Next week, we're going to be dealing with uh, another uh, chapter that is fairly well known in Christian circles. And that is Isaiah chapter 11. There's a lot that is taken from uh, this particular chapter, which is on the list and uh, and this is Isaiah chapter 11, I think you would agree, is talking about the Messiah, yes? Can I say something? Go on. <laughs> I think it's going to be the first real, full-blown, all-out, you know, star-studded messianic prophecy that we've hit so far since we began. Studying. So far on the list. That's what we've got to... This is, this is to... an actual, genuine, bona fide, real thing, the real McCoy Isaiah chapter 11, <laughs> hallelujah, praise God, we're finally hit one. We finally are going to be hitting a real live messianic prophecy. And Let's I think, see, <laughs> any, any, anything? I think that it'll be one that, that for the first time all Jews and all Christians could shake hands and agree, yes, we finally can agree that this passage is indisputably and uh, clearly uh, uh, you know, authoritatively, and you know, you can't do better. This is about as good as it gets. It's about as good this as it gets. Got, this is what we've got to look forward to next week. Isaiah chapter 11. Let's see if that one will take us to church on a Sunday. I'm not so sure about that. But we, as you say, we all agree, Christians, uh, Jews alike, can shake hands and say, we all agree, this is a messianic prophecy. Let's see what we can do with that next week. In the meantime, thank you, my friend. Rabbi Michael Skobek of JewsforJudaism.ca, the website JewsforJudaism.ca, Jews for Judaism in Canada, and uh, for coming back onto the program. And in the meantime, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.